you can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Movie Heaven, Movie Hell podcast extra, and uh, tonight I am joined with uh, um, I'm joined by uh, Ben Woodywis. Hi Simon. Hi, Hi. everyone. <laughs> Hi Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you've done with this place. It looks great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, Ben's joined me to uh, talk about script writing because um, he's a a writer director. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think the writing is kind of more interesting for people than the directing side of things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong here. We could <laughs> come back and do a directing one, but I don't know. I think, yeah, let's talk about writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've known Ben for God, it must be at least ten years now. Yep, it's about that. Yeah, yep. And uh, we worked together first time on a trilogy of short films called um uh monologue triptych which comprised of primero segundo and tercero yep and uh originally you'd written those for somebody else isn't that correct that's true yeah i'd written them for a, a musician who wanted to do some short films I, I think the idea was that he wanted to get some short films done that he would do the music for and in the end, he wanted to do something different. Uh, so I wrote Monologue Triptych, and then he changed his mind. He wanted to do a one-off thing instead of... Um, it was two short films. It was um, old Monologue Diptych back then. But then <laughs> when it came to you, <clears throat> you thought it would work better as a trilogy. So we, we wrote that third part. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he, yeah, instead, he, went, he wanted to do this other thing, which I, I wrote as well. And we shot a kind of lo-fi version of it to see how it was going to go. And then the, which went well, but then the final film never happened. So yeah, Monologue Triptych came to independent running. That's right. Because yeah. um, I was looking for uh, projects that I could make that year because I was, um, I was sort of hell bent to do a lot more projects than I had been doing. So I'd started off the year doing post-its and then I did two um, test commercials called Jack and Jill. And then um, I asked you and you said, oh, well, I have these two short stories. Yeah. And uh, I, I read them and I felt, oh, well, the, you know, I, I like the character in it. He's, you're not your normal, you know, person that you would um, sympathize with him. But there wasn't anything sympathetic about him. And I thought, well, it would be a good idea maybe to have the third part where 
this guy had done such you know bad things or yeah. stupid things that it you know there'd be some sort of karma to it that some cosmic comeback and uh, the third part was about him dealing with the fact that his ex-wife was taking the kids away overseas and how he would deal with that yeah yeah and that's that's where ben green came into everything as well that's right well let's let's talk about the script writing that third part because um i just sort of said the idea to you and you actually went away and then yep. and did it yeah yeah you know i can remember so little about <laughs> it was we're talking about 10 years ago now um <laughs> well not quite we're no, eight that, years ago yeah yeah um yeah all i remember about that was yeah so he had to be given pathos in that final part and originally no i i'm not remembering anything that i think is going to be very interesting for anyone i think we just kind of like you just take that same character and just put him into a, a whole new situation which worked well i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay but um I was just wondering because uh, as as we've been working together and stuff, um, I noticed there's quite there's a difference between when you're writing for say somebody like me and when you're writing for yourself. Because I I noticed there's um, I think you do from what I've noticed that you've done things quite differently. I know that um, for a couple of scripts that you've written with me, there's always um, like a, a sort of character. It's like um, one of the characters will have this thing where he either learns how to play a game or, um, you know, he learns something new. Like, um, remember the the hunting script where the one of the guys goes, how can we find our way back? And another guy tells him, well, if you walk backwards, then you're familiar. Right. And, yeah. you know, I've never, uh, the, the, the work that you've done, yeah. I've never seen that kind of trait in anything. Oh, that's interesting. I do like learning things, and I do like games. Um, so you're going you're gonna to see more gameplay um, <laughs> as it happens in the future. Yes. Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I don't know. Why am I doing that? I'm not sure. Um, I guess like part of the whole like screenwriting thing is that you're you're making a game for people to play along with. I read this thing that Lars von Trier said years ago about how for him making films was just like when he was a kid and he was playing a game and getting everyone to come along come and join in Lars's crazy game and um kind of script writing is kind of like that you're kind of setting out all the rules for everyone and it has this kind of game-like quality to it and I guess also I think it's really important that people learn things in the story that they're not just they don't just go through a series of actions or try to achieve a goal that they have to they have to learn something about themselves or about the world around them at the same time yeah i mean they normally refer to that as a the, the character's arc mm -hmm. yes yeah, so I, I i remember doing a, a course once where uh the uh the woman who was running it was saying about um you know that in 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 a scene that she'd asked us all to write she, she looked at the one i wrote and said well this character has no arc within the scene and like it's a fucking scene <laughs> it's true it's true but at the same time like in defense of this lady who i don't know yeah i always think that each scene in a film should there should contain something that you you should learn something in that scene so you should learn how someone feels or where something is or 
everything should be pushed forward a little bit and you kind of mask that you hide it away you don't want you don't want lazy exposition and people you know suddenly sitting down and going well today's the day my father died 10 years ago <laughs> so it's an important night for me um that kind of thing doesn't really fly but you have to i do think every scene there should be something that you just you get a little window into what someone's like or things move on a little bit i don't think it should always be character arc stuff at all but every scene for me is a, a a moment to teach you a thing at least one thing and then move on i get, maybe that's what she was talking about but all these kind of all this talk of rules it's so boring at the same time you know yeah. you know the whole save the cat thing like everyone is now following this save the cat for her. um for those who don't know and actually i'm i'm not too sure about what's save the cat okay hold on a second i'm going to i can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book Oh, is this to do with a story by, oh, what's his name? Exactly, what's his name? Um, his name is Blake Snyder. As oh, right, no, it's not the one I'm thinking of. Then. No, not, not, um, that, not that uh, story guy. No, um, okay. Blake Snyder, he wrote this book called Save the Cat, a book about screenwriting, and it lays out this formula that you follow if you want to have successful scripts. Ah. And he's not wrong, you know. You watch um, uh, iRobot or Independence Day or, you know, whatever. They are all hitting these notes all along the way. But um, it just means that everyone is writing the same script all the time. If everyone's following the same set of rules, you're going to end up with the same script over and over and over again. And you see this all the time. You go to the cinema, you watch a movie, and you're like, yeah, it was all right. I give that a 6 out of 10. And it's everyone's hitting these notes all the time. And, uh, yeah, it's a little, I don't know. I'm not really one for all these in big important rules i have my own rules i impose on myself um and then if if someone shows me their script and asks for feedback i'll come at them with some useful feedback i hope but i try to veer away from these things that people say all the time like mantras like show it don't say it and stuff like that <laughs> yeah you know like, people, people need to talk sometimes i apologize but you, know, you have to have characters say something kind of everything being visual yeah um otherwise you end up making a terence malick movie which is great but sometimes you don't do that sometimes you do something else well so i mean if it's fine for terence malick because everybody knows that who the he is and that's what they're expecting but uh, if you're you know joe blow then they're expecting it to be more run-of-the-mill more sort of fit into a formula exactly yeah and you, you see a lot of this i do a lot of um things where you like competitions and you write for things and stuff and people come back at you with the most asinine feedback you you've ever seen it just it's just people saying the rules over and over and over again in this really kind of tedious way and to give you an example okay uh i i don't normally read scripts but i read a paul schrader script recently for a film okay. that I can't remember the name of, um, but Paul Schrader's script ended up being changed. That's the important right. part. But I read, so I read the Paul Schrader script, and I'm about five pages in, and I've already seen 12, maybe 13 different rule breaks. That if, you know, if I copy that out word for word and sent it in for a competition, I can tell you exactly what kind of negative feedback I'm going to get back. But this is Paul Schrader writing a movie which is happening, and a lot of the rules that people talk about just don't apply in that situation. 
Um, the big one is like describing stuff that you can't see. So, you know, ah, yes. he, he walks into the room and starts thinking about his wife. You can't see that. So, you know, you're not allowed to do it. And people will jump on you as soon as you show them a script that contains stuff like that. And there's Paul Schrader tapping it out in a movie that got made. So, yeah, I, I remember I put a script of mine up on uh, Trigger Street yeah. years ago and uh, somebody wrote that exact words yeah. you can't you can't write down things that you can't see yeah and i see it all the time i see people do it all the time and is it bad i mean i don't do it anymore because it's one of my my own personal rules and if you know if i was if someone who was like 17 came to me with a script and showed it to me then i would mention that i guess but i don't know i just presume other people they've got something else going you have to like I was saying with the Save the Cat thing, you want to make things your own. You want to have your own style, your own way of doing stuff. If everyone's just doing the same things all the time, then there is no your own style, your own. It doesn't exist because you're just following Blake Snyder's rules. Well, exactly. I mean, we recently spoke about Christopher Nolan and uh, and Memento. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, if it had been made by anybody else, it would probably have, you know, been very linear and it would have started from the end and finished at the beginning yep i mean so the other way around yep you can you can watch the boring version of memento right now because um blindside the tv show i don't know if, uh, if you've seen it i think it's nbc right show about a lady who has amnesia covered in tattoos and then week by week they decode one of the tattoos which is a clue and then <clears throat> follow it up and find out what it all means yeah and well they're, they're also planning to remake memento. they are remaking memento which i think is a waste of time because blindside <laughs> the tv show <laughs> is already showing you that you should drop this like a hot potato um because if you just play it straight it's just really well i don't know the blindside in particular is astonishingly dull um it's really really by the numbers stuff and it goes to show what could have happened with memento if it hadn't been done in that kind of broken structure exactly i mean it's i mean that was part of the game wasn't it yeah yeah, yeah that is exactly again <clears throat> writing scripts is, is a game for people um it's a game for your audience you want them to sit there and you want them to i think you want them to take part and to be sitting there and trying to work out what's going on and playing their own little game in their head and then when you reveal stuff to them either they go they get this kind of satisfaction of like yes called it or they're like, "Ooh, I didn't see that coming, but everything was everything I needed was there. More fool me for missing out on it." Um, that kind of stuff is good. You do, you don't want like um, what's the other Christopher Nolan one, The Prestige? Yeah, there's there's a good game going on for you. You're all you're trying to work out what's happening all the time. And I think the same year you got that um, The Illusionist. Is it? Yes, that Edward yeah. Norton film. Yeah, and The Illusionist throws a big fat sheet at you right at the end. Um, it does something that couldn't possibly have happened. You were paying attention and following the rules. It's kind of like what's that French film? Hort, hort tension, high tension. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh god, that yeah. I hate high tension. Everybody oh. does because of that enormous cheat it throws. Yeah. But the yeah. film is fantastic, and you're with it all the way up until the last ten minutes, and then they cheat you, and you've you've been sitting there trying to work out what's going on. You're looking at the clues, piecing it together, making a little jigsaw in your head. And then 10 minutes before the end, they go, eh, all those pieces were a joke. We played you. And The Illusionist does the same thing. That's, that's kind of why 
The Prestige works better as a film than The Illusionist. Well, I also think as well that Illusionist is more of a love story than it is um, a psychological thriller yeah. about obsession. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But they they do do this kind of like, what's going on? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, just off the time as well, because I mean, how many films were there around at the time with twists? That's true. That's true. But yeah, but it's oh, it's twisted. It's horrific, and a big CGI magic trick as well. Like they they go on about how they got I think Ricky Jay to come in and work with Edward Norton on his um, sleight of hand, but then the big magic trick is the CGI tree growing. Outrageous! <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I can't remember the illusionist that well. So I, I was watching remember. it through a wall of rage, rage, <laughs> hating every second of it. What is this cheap imitation of the Prestige? I'm not even that crazy about the Prestige, but it made me love the Prestige all that much more. Yeah. Now, I mean, we were talking earlier about um, sort of people looking at your work and sort of giving you advice and stuff. But um, I, I don't know if you've experienced this where um, I think somebody sent me a script or um, something. But I remember oh, they, they sent me the review of the script that they had paid a, a professional script writer to read. <laughs> but a review of one of your scripts. I don't think it was mine. No, okay. I think it was somebody else's. But I remember them kept bringing up Pulp Fiction. Uh-huh. And I remember reading this and thinking, if you had got your hands on Pulp Fiction, you would have told them to change it. Absolutely. Pulp Fiction you... doesn't show you anything. It tells you everything. Yeah, uh... but I mean, from the fact that um, like having uh, John Travolta die in the middle and then reappear at the end. Well, that that's an interesting... I know a fact about that story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's um quentin tarantino took it to what's the name of the producer the um oh the uh, harvey weinstein yeah harvey he took it to harvey weinstein he goes it's, it's going to be a comeback vehicle for john travolta it's going to be great and then travolta like uh, uh, travolta weinstein doesn't read the whole thing but he gets the kind of the pitch of it and he hates the fact that john travolta dies absolutely hates it doesn't see this film flying whatsoever and then tarantino goes well well no 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 because at the end of the movie Tarantino's there, Tarantino, Travolta. Can everyone have different names, please? (laughs) Travolta is on screen at the end in a flashback and Harvey Weinstein stops and he's like, oh, so you mean he's alive at the end? And he goes, no, he's not alive. It's a flashback, but he's on screen. Weinstein's like, oh, well, that's fine. That's fine. Go for it then. So Weinstein was fine with the idea of Travolta dying midway through as long as you see him at the end. Because then you're left with that kind of you're, the end of Pulp Fiction leaves you feeling kind of upbeat. Yeah. They kind of walk off, and you're not dwelling on the fact that Travolta's dead and some other people are dead as well, aren't they? Well, Pulp time. Fiction is a is a film that I have watched in chronological order. I have seen that on YouTube. Oh, and, uh... My nerd alert is flashing. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's it, it doesn't quite work so well mm. because the final shot is of Bruce Willis driving off doing the whole zed's dead baby zed's dead yeah have you seen memento in chronological no no that 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 i i i can figure out what that's going to be like and i wasn't interested i wouldn't mind but yeah i know what you mean it's interesting about the pop fiction thing but yeah sorry so yeah this guy would have given negative feedback to pop fiction. oh god yeah 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 i mean but it's 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 easy to sort of after the fact say oh yeah well you know in pulp fiction they did this this and this because it made a lot of money and stuff but when you're given a script it's quite easy to sort of tear it apart yeah absolutely and i'll always i'll i'll go to my grave saying this 
is that you need to break the rules in order to push things forward a little bit. And when you're when you're doing that and you're presenting it to people, all they see is rule breaking and they don't see the potential for how things can be pushed on a little bit further. When someone else breaks the rules and it works, then everyone starts looking at that thing as another way of doing stuff. And it, yeah, it becomes another rule. Yeah, and it drives me bonkers that people won't wrap their head around the concept of breaking the rules in the first place, or even just a teeny weeny little bit, just a tiny bit, to be interesting. They'll want to just follow those rules all the way down, especially writers. Ugh, so much. <laughs> now, um, as somebody who's made films out of your scripts, uh, Ben, how oh, do yeah. you feel when uh, somebody changes something in the script that you've written absolutely fine the whole when i'm writing scripts for other people i'm I'm writing scripts for other people they're not my things at all and i think that if you're the kind of writer who gets protective and you start fighting your corner and stuff i i don't see the point because you're not the person who's going to have to bring everything to life you're not you know you write the scripts and then you're done that's it feet up um someone else is going to have to go through months and months of hell trying to bring that script to the screen. And I don't think there's... If, if something was going to be, like... Re- it's got to be really negative. I mean, it's got to be really negative for it to be worth mentioning. I mean, yeah, I can't even imagine what it could be. But it, I, I say just go with it. The person making it has a better... Under- they've got everything in their head. And I think you've got to just make those changes or have them make those changes. Well, that's right, because um, I remember calling you up when I was in the middle of doing Blood and Roses and asking you what I f- what you thought about me um, making one of the characters in it involved in a certain crime yep, that yep, happens within yep, the film, and yep, you and were that, happy about it. And it works really well. Yeah. Yeah, and it just makes everything a lot richer. And I think often these kind of ideas come to you when you're in the thick of it and when you're shooting. And if you were to have an idea and think, hey, how about we do that? And then you've got the writer going, no, no, you can't change a word. You know, that's just, um, yeah, I think you know that I've got a very kind of fluid, flexible attitude towards filmmaking and that I don't think that the script is the final film. I think that once you're in there doing stuff, you can find more interesting ways of doing things. Um, even even table reads don't really, it's, don't display this. No. Have you been on the receiving end of a writer telling you not to change their work? Yes, 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 I have. Yes, yes. Not going into much detail, but how did you feel? Um, Frustrated. Because of everything I said, the writer doesn't understand. I mean, not every writer. I'd, I'd hate to think, I'd hate for people to think that I hate writers. <laughs> Simon just extracts the line, I hate writers. <laughs> plays at the loop um <clears throat> but a writer has to get down with the fact that they are just one of many people involved in the process because you're making the thing you need to make pictures of it in your head and you have to work out a way for everything to work and sometimes that involves changing things and you need to have that flexibility and if a writer comes back to you with inflexibility um it doesn't make them look good i don't think it's terribly professional i think you filmmaking is collaborative you have meetings you discuss things you bend 
to other people's will sometimes. Sometimes you're fierce on things and you're like, no, we need to do it this way. But it's a very much a give and take kind of thing. It's like you're in this huge relationship with many, many people and you all need to be giving and taking together. And when writers <clears throat> don't want those changes made, um, I think they're not seeing the big picture at all. They're just looking at their one small part of everything and not looking around at everything else. Does that sound mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, we, we've all we've all worked with writers who they give you the script and it's, and then you go to them, Oh, well, I'd like to change. No, can't. No. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I'll give you a good example. I mean, I was filming in September and no, sorry, October. And uh, the actress who was in the film had problems saying a line of dialogue. So we changed it. And it was because she just couldn't get her tongue around the words. It happens. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen it happen many times, and I've been one for saying, "Well, what works for you?" Because at the end of the day, for me, it's all about what the words mean, not what the exact words. Absolutely. Are. And if words are difficult to say, that's probably not great. Like you know, Harrison Ford in Star Wars. <laughs> you can write this stuff, but you sure as hell can't say it. Um, but yet they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they they get it all out, all those aspects <laughs> and everything. Yeah, no slips. Yeah, no. And there's a good example of this in Blood and Roses, I think, where uh, Kane John Scott yep. delivers a line which is slightly different to what it was on the page, and I, I can't remember if that was uh, a misread or an improv or you know just changing it a bit. Works a lot better. Works a lot better than the line I wrote. So, do you remember what line it was? Uh, yes, I do. It is. Uh, well, I need to get it right, don't I? Um, it's him coming into the bathroom. Ah, uh, yes. And he, I know, I know the one. What, what does he say? Because I've got the two lines mixed up. Um, was it? Uh, he goes, "You should be in bed." Doesn't yeah, it? that's it. You should be in bed. And then what I'd originally written was something like, "You shouldn't be up." That's it. Yeah. But you should be in bed has this kind of like um it's advice but at the same time it could be some some kind of order as well and an i know best kind of thing and it had loads more going on for it than whatever i'd written you shouldn't be up (laughs) some kind of rubbish yeah well it it, um it was just sort of his delivery as well because he he does kind of appear out of nowhere you don't see him turn up he's just there yep Yep. And uh, she's quite distressed. And, he, you know, he says that line and then um, he sees that she's in distress and sort of comfort zone is kind of confused of what's going on. He does eventually, but he de- he delivers that line like mm. murderer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like an absolute cold-blooded killer. That's how it comes across. <laughs> and that, that's, that for me is a really good example of, you know, a, a small change that makes everything better. And do, do you, how did that? Do you know how that change came about? Um, well, it wasn't an instruction by me. <laughs> um, I know that uh, Kane and Marisha would go off and they would rehearse together mm-hmm. without me being there, which slightly annoyed me because I felt that I should really have been in, you know, those kind of rehearsals. Yeah. But they they would go off, and so it may have been something that came up, or it could have been just that. Um, it was a decision that Kane came up with at the time. Well, it, it worked. 
it works yeah. yeah yeah important yeah yeah i mean there's i remember we changed the um the the, the biting scene the scene where marisha's character gets bitten because I, I do remember how that was in the script. That was a bit rude, wasn't it? Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, not that bit. No, no. If anything, it was a bit cheesy. It was like, um, was it uh, Seth tips her down, looks at the fire, the fire comes alight. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he looks at her and then bites her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, um, in the film, it's a lot more saucier. <laughs> yeah, I remember, actually, that bit playing out in the film and uh, thinking, I did. I didn't, I didn't write this. <laughs> a bit rude. Um, but that's good. I think it worked. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, that was um, that was uh, Ben Green and Marisha Kay came up to me and they said, well, this scene, we, we have some ideas and would you be, um, you know, willing to listen to what we have to say? And they told me. And I said, well, are you prepared to do that? Because it's not me who has to perform that. I'm quite willing to, to shoot that. That's great. And that's what and, you, you yeah. know how far people are going to go with something. Yeah. As well. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. But no, I was going to say we there was a scene that was uh, in on the script was far saucier, which we changed. <laughs> Just because I think of location. I remember that bit. It was cold, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, shooting in Cornwall in November. Yeah, yeah, it's probably best for that. <laughs> that bit was a bit rough. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think many people know this, but uh, we were sort of collaborating together on a feature script um, for a year before we finally settled on Blood and Roses. The Refuge, yeah, the Refuge, yeah, the Refuge. The Refuge yeah. is a great script. Um, yeah, I really liked that. There was a lot of, I mean, that was developed. There was mm. like draft 26 or something by the end of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a very, very long process. It was kind of a surprise, in fact, because like, well, there was the refuge and then there was, I forget the title of it. Oh, it was uh, in the Valley of the Shadow of the Darkness. That's that's right. Um, and then and then there was Blood and Roses, and there I think Blood and Roses. Yeah. In the Valley went through like eight redrafts or something. It did, yeah. Um, and then Blood and Roses were just bang, go, go. Like it, yeah. it was like, oh, whoa, what happened? Where's where's draft twenty six? <laughs> well, I think what had happened with the Refuge was that we got it to such a point that I couldn't afford to make it. Yeah. Yeah. With with what was on the page, I mean, it's a nice, it's a small cast. Yeah, that's the upside of it. There's not many people in it, but that is is that final act, which gets a bit practical effectsy. Uh, well, very practical effects. Very. If there is a practical effects person listening to this who has a huge yeah. amount of body parts, wants to <laughs> use them in something, uh, the refuge is waiting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, also as well that uh, location yeah. that, that wasn't available where we were filming because we were always going to be filming at that location. Yeah, there was and, there uh, was no barn. No. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a kind of gamey aspect to the refuge as well. Mm. Actually, there was that thing. There was something with his hand. He gets taught how to not feel pain or something. It's been a long time since I read the refuge. No. But there, there's a no. bit where something gets stuck through his hand do you remember this i think it might be thinking of another script because he um there's a whole thing where he he gets cut up yep but before that bit 
There's no. a, he's lying in the bed and he, he's hurting. And one of the people in the house teaches him that there's a way that you can do stuff without hurting. She sticks, she takes a hat pin and sticks it. Oh, and, okay. All right. Now, now I remember it. Yeah. God, it's been a while since I went uh, to the refuge. And he gets kind of taught this whole no pain thing, which he thankfully forgets for the last third of the movie. Otherwise, <laughs> he'd be all right. Um, but I, I remember really liking that. And I actually, unbeknownst to you, I sent the refuge to someone else for a, a quick kind of feedback session. Oh, right. And they loved that bit. They absolutely loved that bit. They wanted to see more of um, hat pins going into people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what. <laughs> what do they make of the rest of it? <laughs> I, really, I can't remember. <laughs> they just loved the hat pin. They loved bit. the hat pin bit. They really did. Um, I, can't, I could really. No, that was a long. <clears throat> I mean, this is pre Blood and Roses. This is a year before Blood and Roses. Yeah, that was yeah. yeah. But there's been loads of scripts that um the the general public don't know about. There's the refuge uh, in the valley. There was uh, the hunting party. That's right. Yeah. Although that didn't really get to well, it got to half script form, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you go about half. You go about halfway, and you're like, well, I that's I can't. I don't have the time really to be working on this. Uh, so I give this to you, and then yeah, if you want to find somebody else to can. To complete yeah. it. Time is the time is the killer. Time is the little death. Um, just trying to find time to get everything done is maddening, absolutely maddening. Um, but yeah, yeah, that 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 is a true fact. And then, and there's another one now. Yeah, <laughs> with more but, time request. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, though, I, I don't know if it's the case anymore with yourself, but you, I, I remember you, you banged out. Blood and Roses within a weekend. Yeah, yeah. No, I can still, I can still do that. If I get um, the time, then I can still um, get them done. There's a, a, a script which I wrote recently, which I wrote in three days. Um, and you know, time is not the only, is not the important thing. It's got to be good as well. So, what I do if I'm going to do a an intensive thing like that, I'll spend uh, a good long time thinking about it that's an important part of it so the, the worst thing is you sit down to a blank page and you go interior uh nightclub e evening and then you go well now i don't know um where do i go from here i don't know so i've got to think it through in its entirety and i've got to have my you know let's say it's 30 scenes i've got to know all those 30 scenes and i've got to know how you go from scene 18 to scene 19 what that transition is and i've also got to know if which later scenes call back to earlier scenes and that kind of thing you've got to have it all in your head first so i'll, I'll write down like bullet points of everything that happens i'll write down little snatches of dialogue that i like um and then you sit down and then you start fleshing it out and yeah that's that's how you can write a whole feature script in in one go in a busy weekend or something. I've done it a few times now, actually. It's always a bit stressful, but um, you can get it done. You just need to find that block of time when no one's going to be harassing you or asking you to do stuff or whatever. And it, it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 
I'm very much the same actually, um, especially the shorts I've written. Um, I tend to sort of think them out and then once I've sort of got a, a complete picture of it, then I'll sit down and write because otherwise I will sit there and I will look at the blank screen and yep. also I will, you know, do other things. I'll go, oh, I'll go on the internet and do this. And yep. so it's kind of like, it, it does have to put like a, a fire in my belly to sort of, to write it. Exactly. And, and like with the best will in the world, as, as much as you've thought about something, you'll reach a point where you're just not sure how to move from one bit to the next bit. Like even if you know what the next bit is, um, you can't tidily connect these two things together. And that is something that you have to focus on. And then like often you'll probably like, we've all spoken to people who've got a great idea for a movie yeah. and they'll, they'll tell you their great idea for a movie. And you're like, yeah, this is a great idea. When, when you write it down, um, because it's difficult <laughs> and because turning your idea into tedious, tedious words on a page is just, it's quite an arduous process. Um, there's, it's hard and you have to focus on what you're doing and you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I tend to do myself what I call the shit draft. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is, I'll just, I'll just write. So I've got the idea in my head. I've got the characters. I kind of know what they're going to say, what they're going to do. And I'll just write and I'll just put it on the paper. And I won't care too much about the explanations or the, you know, descriptions. Uh, I will just sort of kind of concentrate on the story and the dialogue and stuff because I can. And then once I've got it all written down and I will look at it and go, oh, God, this is terrible. But then I can I've got something to work with. Yeah. Exactly. No, and having everything done is the most important thing. If you take your time, if you sit down and you spend one evening creating one page, and then the next evening you'll create the second page and stuff, this is just that's the recipe for never ever finishing what you're doing, um, because you'll run out of steam. And getting that that first draft out is what counts. Once that's done, you can then go back to the beginning, start going through it get vicious, imagine that it's written by someone you hate um, and start making changes all over the place. And But you have to get that first draft done. Otherwise, yeah, you'd, I, I don't know. Are you ever going to finish it? Possibly not. Well, I always get to a point where it's kind of like, uh, you know, um, I've got to get mate to make this now because I could just sit there forever changing it changing it. It's like with when I'm editing as well. I'll get to a point where it's like I could change, I could keep carry on playing with this but i'm i'm more or less happy with it yep yep you've yeah, it's, everything it's time to move on yeah everything needs to be abandoned at some point otherwise you would never finish anything you've got to just get to a stage where yeah okay that's it it's it's it is in inverted commas finished and time to move on to the next stage because yeah, yeah you can you could tinker, tinker forever oh god yeah oh god yeah i mean uh i'm sort of because uh, with mon love where I'm making a, a feature film by a, a lot of short stories. Mm. And so I complete, as I go along, I complete each short story before shooting the next one or try to as much as possible. And um, you, you could, I could, I keep going back and I, you know, slightly play with things, you know. You know that writer's thing about write your first draft, put it in a drawer and don't look at it for a few months and then come back to it and then make your changes. I always think that that whole argument is a bit, is a, a little bit bunk because you change over the course of time and your 
taste in stuff starts changing. So you're always... It's, it's true, but also it, it can give you a bit of perspective as well. I know um, in the Stephen King book about writing, uh-huh. he says that. But the thing about Stephen King is in those three months, he's writing another book. Exactly. Right. Whereas most people, they write one thing, they put throw away, and then they're just thinking about that thing in their drawer the whole time. I really should go back to it. But yeah, but you will just, I think you will just change and your taste will change. Like you'll look back on films you made years ago and you'll think, oh no, why did I cut there? Why not there? What, what was wrong with me? Why would I do this? And years ago, years, years ago, <laughs> just 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 watching it. I mean, like just once you. I mean, that's. I think it's one of the reasons why I find it quite difficult sometimes to watch my own work because you do sit there and you go, "Oh, why did I cut there?" Exactly. And then the thing is, you can't remember the decisions you made at that time. But you're a t- totally different person back then. And uh... well, it's not just that. I mean, it's also the fact that you know, there's certain. There's a reason. Sometimes there's a reason why you cut there, and you, you you're watching oh, yeah. it and you're going why did i do that and you forget the reason why do you forget the reason that maybe there wasn't an a, a, you know maybe you were covering up a mistake absolutely that's the very or, very last frame you could use before exactly or you, like... or you ran out and so you had to cut to another take yeah. or yeah you know there's there's hundreds of different reasons why you decide it and so i'll say this to people is that if you do a if there's a Q&A and you ask somebody a question, don't point out what you would have done. Because at the end of the day, you weren't there. You did. You wouldn't make the same decisions no. that this person would make. So you telling them how you would have made the film different is not going to help anybody. Awful when people do that. Um, what they don't understand is that when you start any, when you start a film at any stage of it, like in screenwriting or the actual making of it, you're faced with like 10 million different pathways that you can go down. And what you have to do is you choose one of those pathways and then you go down that. And each of these pathways then branches off as it goes on. And every time you come to a junction, you have to choose which direction to go. So when you're showing someone the final film, that final film is the result of a huge number of choices which you've made for good reasons. So when people come in with the, I would have done that kind of thing, it's like, yeah, well, you didn't know what the options available were and you're not choosing the route that I'm going on. So just take the film for the choices that I made rather than the imaginary choices that you would have made. Yeah. I mean, I have to say it's, it's worse when I've had like advice from friends saying, Oh, maybe you should have put a close up or something in there. It's like, yeah, dude, I didn't have time. To yeah. Close-up. That kind of, it's difficult to give people. I've, I've done a lot of this, <laughs> giving people feedback <laughs> with films and you can't come at it with magic land suggestions. You have to go with what you're looking at on the screen. So you don't say put shots in here, which maybe you don't have. I have no idea. Um, you take a look at the the film as a whole and you go, okay, well maybe trim that bit, maybe use that bit instead of that bit. You just look at the existing material in front of you instead of introducing magic solutions. Exactly, because... I mean, not many people have a budget to do reshoots or anything. Hell no. Not, not even like ADR. Yeah. Um, although fixing stuff with ADR is the devil's business. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go down that route. Um, but yeah, they, you just if you're going to give people good advice, it has to be based on what you're watching. It's not based on imaginary stuff in your head. Yeah, put this, put this stuff that you don't have into the movie. That's not useful at all. That's it. Well, I mean, part of 
being like no budget filmmakers is you have to make do with what you have. Mm -hmm. So you turn every negative into a positive. Exactly. And that's part of the whole choice process. You're going down this, you're going down all these pathways, you're making choices, you're choosing things based on what's available to you and what's the best possible choice for you to make at that junction. And people come into it cold at the end, don't see that. They just see, I don't know what they see. They've got this imaginary thing going on in their head of how things should be. It would have been much more interesting if you'd done, if you'd made the film a completely different film. Yeah, thanks. Well, do you remember um, this podcast that reviewed the feature film and they kept on going on about how bad the script was? Oh, you remember? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Before making voodoo dolls of those guys, <laughs> I turned this off. So I didn't hear the whole thing. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, are they did, sort of, did um, they all die in a horrible accident? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't think the podcast is around anymore. That's but, a shame. Um, it was, it's it was, a shame. It was great it? guys. They were great guys. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've had bad reviews and I've had bad reviews for people who sort of, you know, they're coming from a certain point of view or that they're, you, you can tell that they uh, have been sort of schooled in films and stuff. So they kind of know what they're talking about. But these four guys who went down to the local multiplex and watched films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is that. After, I, I, did I tell you about the Hamlet conversation I had with someone? No. These guys kept coming back to like, um, the script is so bad and blah, blah, blah. And I spoke to a friend about this and he was saying, he, he come, he's a, a theatre guy. But he was saying the Hamlet is the golden example of how there, there are no bad scripts. Because you've seen very good versions of Hamlet and you've seen very bad versions of Hamlet but it's always the same words that they're saying. What makes people like or dislike something is something else. It's not the actual script of Hamlet itself. It, they're picking up on other things. So that made me feel better for a while. <laughs> and then, yeah. then I spent a few months showering in bleach. That also helped. Well, yeah, because, I mean, they, they attacked the script for no reason at all. Well, they, that, they, that, 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 was anno- that was the annoying I don't thing remember what their reasons were. They, they, did, they did say things, but I, I don't remember what they were. I think their reasons came from ignorance, that they didn't know what they were talking about. So at the end of the day, yeah. they attacked the script. Oh, obviously, it's a bad script. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, they sounded like they were more used to seeing big budget stuff. Yeah. Um, and when you're going the low budget route, you have to make, you can't, you know, cars can't blow up. Buildings can't fall down. Um, planes can't land even. So you have to find yeah. drama and threat inside of other things. Inside- I see. I mean, you you also have to sort of disguise that stuff. Yes, you do. It's like I keep. I did this um, talk recently, and I was explaining how it's kind of like watchmaking, because when you look at a watch, you just see what time it is, and potentially you look at the make of watch, and you go, "Oh, that nice watch." Hey. What you're not paying attention to is the huge number of cogs and wheels behind that face, which are making everything work. And when you're doing, when you're script writing or low budget independent filming, you're hiding all these cogs and wheels from everyone. But you've thought about them hugely. They are extremely important to you. You're watchmaking. But 
people have to not see that. They just have to see what time it is and the face of the watch. They don't see all those kind of inner workings and they don't appreciate them because they're hidden out of sight. And that's, uh, I think, an important part of low budget filmmaking. You hide all these things which are making everything work. Well, I mean, I've recently been watching a lot of uh, Jim Jarmusch films and uh, he's somebody who actually doesn't care about that. He doesn't need to see a plane landing in another country. His character is just in another country. Exactly. And I mean, he started off, is it Permanent Vacation, the first one? That's right, yeah. He started that off getting, um, he didn't even have complete reels of film. He just had a few odds and ends. So he didn't, he couldn't tie everything together in the way that films normally tie together. So he's left with, well, I'll just shoot one scene and then I'll shoot another scene somewhere else, somewhere else, another scene somewhere else. I won't do cutaways because we don't have to film. I've just got these little bits and bobs. And then when putting them all together, he develops that cut to black thing in between scenes in vacation. And he's only doing the cut to black because he doesn't, he can't, he literally can't put these two scenes together because it'll be jarring and weird. So instead of doing that, he just does cut to black, fade in, and we're somewhere else. Um, And that was a technique born out of the restrictions imposed on him rather than him having to, he didn't actually come up with that idea. He's not doing it in the same way that Gaspar Noé is doing it. He's doing it because he can't make it work any other way. But saying that, he used it a lot in Dead Man. Well, yeah. Face to Black. Yeah, I think he, you know, you, you find yourself doing something because you're forced into doing it. And then you start thinking, well, no, actually, I kind of like this. This is pretty cool. And things become signature as well, I guess. So, yeah. And yeah, nothing wrong with a callback to your old stuff. No, it was good. You've seen more Jim Jarmusch than I have these days. Yes, yes. I've, I've only have, seen yeah. like three. <laughs> what three have you seen? I've seen um, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, which I read yeah. recently. Um, I've seen Down by Law a long time ago. Please don't ask me any questions about it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what's the um, what's that one where the people in the hotel? Um, oh, um, oh God, the um, Elvis oh. stuff. Oh, oh God, um, Japanese guy to- takes photos. Oh, photos. bloody hell! <laughs> I've watched that one recently as well. Got that that door, that the bellhop who's just swatting flies all the time or oh god it's um go and get on imdb <laughs> i know it's terrible I mean, but it's <laughs> uh, uh, mystery train yeah mystery train of course um yes. <laughs> i think that's about it i don't okay. think i've seen any of the others i never i've dead man is on my list Dead sure. Man's good. I remember when it came out, I wasn't that interested, but seeing it recently, it's it's really good. Um, I like um, Stranger Than Paradise is very good. It's 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 a big jump up from Permanent Vacation. Permanent Vacation, I would say watch it if you're interested, but if not, I give it a miss because it's not great. Yeah, watch like the first twenty minutes. I'm not going to say yeah. I saw the whole thing. But... Oh, okay. Oh wait, oh Mike, sorry. I've I've also IMDb'd Mr. Jarmusch here, um, <laughs> and I completely forgot uh, that I saw Coffee and Cigarettes as well. Oh, okay. I loved okay. Coffee and Cigarettes when it came. Out. Yeah, that, that was that was fun. That was fun. I mean, there was a few of the parts I didn't write, but I, yeah, that was sure. the same with Night on Earth. Yeah, this I never saw, although I feel like I should. 
Night on Earth is it is really good, but it's I, I think it I think most people have a section that they don't like. I mean, I've seen this with sort of reviews and stuff that they all everybody sort of picks on a different segment that they don't like. So they tend to like three out of the four segments yeah. that they are. I didn't know that Jenna Rollins was in it. I'm just I'm ID I'm DBing it right now. I knew Beatrice Dahl was in it because mm. you know came out early nineties. Everyone was all about Beatrice Dahl. Yes. But um, yeah, Jenna Rollins, Victoria Snelling. Interesting. That's right. That's right. Oh, and an early role for Giancarlo Esposito. Well, um, indeed. I mean, he's he's worked with a lot of a lot of good people. I mean, um, Only Lovers Left Alive. Which yeah. Is really good. I now, really enjoyed. That. I have Only Lovers Left Alive on DVD and Blu-ray in the other room, and I still haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me why I've got it on two formats. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I will get around to watching that. Tom Hiddleston, he's he's yes. always fun. But what's her face? Is Tilda Swinton's in that as well. Tilda Swinton as well. She's yes. old, always because she's worked with him since um, Broken Flowers. Oh, okay. Whoa, wait a minute. So I've just IMDb'd that as well. John Hurt. I didn't know he was in that. Yes, he is. Oh, I don't pay attention, do I? <laughs> and of course, John Hurt's worked with him since Dead Man. So. Oh, get away! Now that I did not yeah. know. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So it's um, I, I certainly a director to certainly watch because he's he's always sort of stayed in low budget realm. It, his films have never been any yeah. bigger than I'd say about a medium. Yeah, yeah. I I read um I don't know if you read Cronenberg on Cronenberg, but there's a bit where he talks about having a chat with Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone saying to him, how do you feel about being, I can't remember what he calls him, but he said, how about, how do you feel about being a niche filmmaker? Or, uh, you know, uh, basically Oliver Stone is saying, I make films for the, I make films for the multiplex and, right. and you don't, you deal in low budgets, although, you know, Cronenberg's has some fairly big budgets. Um, you deal in low budgets and you, you deal in select audiences. How do you feel about that? And Cronenberg talks about, how you know intellectually the the guy he's talking to then says that sounds a bit offensive and Cronenberg's like no 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 intellectually I understand completely and I think that staying within that realm just offers you a lot more freedom to do the things that you want to do you know Oliver Stone needs to have meetings and focus groups and he has to get things to play to everyone and although he's famously quite a shouty opinionated guy um, he's definitely going to do more bending about how to do things than Jim Jarmusch does. Jim Jarmusch is going to get to have his way a lot more. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's kind of like what makes him, like, you know, the unofficial king of the Indies. Yeah. Or the official king of the yeah. Indies. I don't know. I mean, no, absolutely. Uh, is there a king? <laughs> uh, I don't think there will. I mean, you read more and more and more about Cassavetes being the father mm. of independent film, but he's dead, so he can't be the king. Um, yeah. But I mean, what about. Um... Like the French New Wave, they, those were independent. They were independent. Um, they they suffered from infighting amongst each other. Uh, Truffaut and Goddard having this huge falling out, writing letters to each other, which got published. I don't. Why would you do that? I don't know. Um, but I've I've actually been watching a fair bit of New Wave stuff at the mo uh, at the moment recently, and it's a real hit and miss ratio because. They're kind of free to do whatever they want to do. And sometimes the yeah. stuff they want to do is a little bit uh, niche. And this is me saying it's a little bit niche as well. I kind of, I like niche, but sometimes it's particularly difficult. Whereas I guess 
someone like Jarmish, I think he's just been getting. I don't think he his I don't think his number one concern is the audience, but I think he thinks about it now more than he probably did with permanent vacation and stuff like that. Possibly. I mean it's um Who knows what's going on. I, I think Ghost Dog Way the Samurai was kinda of like his closest to doing like a sellout film. Yeah. In some sense. I, I know uh my girlfriend's a big fan and she doesn't like that film. She feels it's the least uh Jim Jarmish film. I think because... But saying that, having seen other um crime thrillers and stuff and gangster films, it feels more Jim Jarmish yeah, than anything absolutely. else. Yeah, I think the the thing that makes Ghost Dog feel different is that it has a non-white central character and it, it has this kind of interest in in non-white culture and that's really really unique in Jarmish's canon everything is about white guys pretty much with you know a few other things coming in but like so Ghost Dog is you've got the soundtrack being done by the RZA and you've got yeah. um, Forrest Whitaker in the lead and his friend is a Haitian I think or, or French that's right. Um, yeah. In the film, and it's it deals with cultures that Jarmusch isn't, and he doesn't have to be, but I think that's kind of why it st- sticks out a little bit for me. One of the nice things I'll say about Ghost Dog in particular is there's one scene about three quarters of the way into the film where you know how um, each chapter is kind of preceded by a quote from the um, yes. from the the Way of the Samurai book. There's one that talks about the importance. Well, it's not the. Is it the way of samurai, or is it the? It's not. It's oh, no, not. It, the, it's it, not Sun Tzu's art of war. No, that's what. I was yeah, thinking. it's something else. I I forget. Okay. I think it's like. No, you're right. Uh, is 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 the way? It's the 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 honor code of the samurai. Yeah, yeah. And then one chapter starts with a quote about how you have to pay respect to the next generation, and then what follows is the Rizza walking down the street past Forest Whitaker, and they just nod at each other and walk on. And I thought that was really nice that Jarmish does this kind of like, I'm going to give, you know, right now is the Wu-Tang Clan's large, large moment. You know, they've just gone triple platinum two years earlier. And I think that was a really nice nod from Jarmish to a whole other culture. Yeah, that really worked for me. Yeah, but I mean, he's also been known to use uh, musicians a lot in his films. Anyway. Oh, he uses yeah musicians all the time, but always of that kind of like Tom Waits or what's the John Laird or yeah. someone like that. Yeah, always yeah. that oh, yeah. like that gritty well, barroom kind of thing. That's right. Well, he uh, uh, John Laird was in Permanent Vacation as a saxophone player, and then became the lead in Stranger Than Paradise. And that is the thing: if you've seen Stranger Than Paradise and then watch Permanent Vacation, you go, "Why isn't that guy in the lead?" And the, mm-hmm. and the other bloke isn't. Yeah. Because that's unfortunately that's the one thing that suffers with Permanent Vacation is that the main guy is not interesting at all. Yeah. Yeah. Where it would have been a better film if it had been. A, a sort of a better actor but then again it goes back to sort of no budget filmmaking you have to you know work with what you have absolutely yeah there's a, a lot of mileage out of jim jarmish there i wasn't expecting that <laughs> oh we get a lot of mileage out of a lot of subjects yeah, <laughs> do you have been that we're talking about screenwriting and this is yeah. movie heaven movie hell after all yeah <laughs> you have a movie heaven movie hell for screenwriting no particular directors no nothing just a kind of like fantastic example of screenwriting and then potentially terrible <laughs> example of screenwriting without talking about Ghosts of Mars. 
Okay. Uh, well, the the script that sort of springs to mind for Movie Heaven, and it was as one of the sort of first scripts I read was Reservoir Dogs. Ooh. Because, uh, uh, but I know, I know, it's it's. But the thing was that one of the reasons why I quite liked that is you could you could read it as like you know like a, a normal story instead of it being very sort of you know with scripts you get certain scripts where you you know you there's a lot of sort of description about the place and stuff and it, it doesn't flow so well yeah. i mean when you you're reading it and you know this will make a good film but as a piece of literature to read it's not that exciting yet when um but then i also i love the script to alien because that 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 is such a fast read. You you read that within an hour. Yeah. Because it's so minimalistic. Yeah. So um, I mean, those ones I would hold up. What would you pick for movie my, heaven as a script? My movie heaven is always uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that oh, Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark is just a really really well put together script. Um, it's it's got everything going on. Like it, every word that people say is useful and fantastic and the way everything is kind of the way everything unfolds is also just gorgeous as well i really really i just love the way it all works like i, I wrote a, a piece about it recently about how good the beginning was but for example you matt Groening and the simpsons when he designs characters he wants characters that you can rec recognize from a silhouette so all, all yeah. of the simpsons and all of the future armor cast if you see them just in black you can recognize who they are and that way that Indy gets introduced, you don't see him, but there's like something goes off, there's a whip crack, and then he steps in, hat on, he's just like a, in shadow. Everything is done in this kind of really simple, pared down way, but it's, it just works so well. It's funny when it needs to be, it's sad when it needs to be, it's exciting when it needs to be, it's just, yeah, it's a really great thing. And the thing is, um... You know, a great film usually comes from a great script. I mean, if, it, yeah. if you've got a bad script, you're going to get a bad film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although, according to Theatre Guy, there are no bad scripts. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't see Three-Headed Shark Attack. So, um, for uh, a script for movie hell, um, it is hard because well, um, if you don't know it's... why it's hell, like. Well, it's not that. I would say that um, I would probably avoid it because reading a script is, you know, it's it's time, you know, because it, it, it can, some scripts, are, as I say, like Alien is a fast read and some scripts, it's it's a slog. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> it is. I mean, just on paper, my movie hell is talking head scripts. So scripts where people are just sitting talking to each other and then you cut to another scene and they're talking and then there's a lot of description <laughs> and then more talking no one ever does anything but then you got tinker taylor soldier spy which i yeah. loved that film was amazing and it is just old men sitting in rooms talking to each other yes and no well yeah 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 they occasionally some other bits yeah but i mean there's there's tension in there with what <laughs> they're talking about because you're trying to going back to what you were saying about games because you're trying to work out who the mole is. absolutely you're trying to work out so many things like even when gary oldman goes to see kathy bates in it there's um a bit where they're sitting talking together and they're in between them on the far side of the room there's a young couple who are kind of who are canoodling 
and mm. they're watching. I think Kathy Bates says something like young love or whatever. Yeah. And the yeah. first time I saw that film, I remember thinking, wait a minute, are they seeing them in the past? Is that them? Are they kind of like remembering what they used to have when they were younger together or something? Um, and the, the whole, I was going like way, way down into the film and thinking that it was doing a lot of things. I think you're supposed to think that there's something going on there as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I actually really loved that film. And uh, I, I went to see it with a friend of mine who thought it was really boring. And I'm like, wait a minute, did you really just see the same mm-hmm, film? Mm-hmm. Loads but of because... people do, because if you don't pay attention, yeah. um, you're going to miss it. Like that, the ending is silence. It's, um, it's just people, you're, you're on the edge of, well, if you, if you like the film, you're on the edge of your seat because you can hear someone walking up to where <laughs> Gary Oldman is and you're, you're on, you know, it's a knife edge kind of thing. But if you're not, if you haven't really been following what's going on, you haven't been paying attention to all that talking, that whole final part is just dead to you, I think. Um, so yeah, that doesn't answer your question about... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've read other people's scripts where you know um i've been maybe offered it mm-hmm. and um okay I, i'll i'll talk about one because the film's been made and i had no involvement with it but there was a film out there called the zombie king mm-hmm. and i remember reading the script and i thought it had a very decent idea but i thought it was very cliched and very it didn't do things very well yeah the, the characters in it make a lot of wrong decisions and I actually wanted to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the reasons why I didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, um, yeah, I, I'd say I would put that in my movie hell. I mean, if I'd been given the job to direct mm-hmm. it, I don't know how much leeway I would have got because they had the actors in place already. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And they were looking for somebody who could make this film with very little money mm-hmm. and i think in their mind they went with the right choice because they went with a guy whose background was in special effects i mean even though this was the first film he was going to direct um he had a background in special effects and they felt well if it's going to be a zombie film we're gonna have a load of zombies then it's best to have somebody who you know yeah. knows something about special effects but having knowing somebody who knows about special effects is fine but can they tell a good story? And and yeah. in my opinion, after seeing the final film, no. Yeah, I I, I always think it's a bit dodgy when I'm, I, again I'm not casting any aspersions on technicians at all, but <clears throat> when you get a film which is someone's first directorial job and prior to that they've just done work in either effects or cinematography or editing, um, often those films are not good shall we say but then saying that those technicians may have got in those jobs because they couldn't get directing maybe they yeah, had direct essentially yeah. Like, yeah yeah because you know i've I, myself i've done cinematography and i've done editing and you know i think i can put a film together i'm thinking of resident evil part two i always go straight to <laughs> i go straight to resident evil part two it's just <laughs> awful awful <laughs> Um, and it's, I think it's made by either the original films, either editor or DP, I forget, but I think it's the, it's definitely the first film they made. It might be the only film they made. Um, and, oh, it's just awful. But I mean, that is often the way that they'll, 
uh, especially for sequels, if they can't get the director back, then they'll get someone who was on the, the first film um, in any capacity, but particularly mm. in either effects, editing, or DP. I, I don't know why. No. Well, I guess they like a bit of continuity, and so it always comes down to a, a trust, doesn't yeah. it? Because they want to they work with people that they know will be able to sort of deliver the goods or Absolutely. they may have, have some control over. I don't know. Yeah. But um, it just makes me think about... Um, I, are you willing to talk about UA Bowl? I can talk about Uwe Boll. I don't. I don't have uh, much to say, but yeah, yeah. We can, okay. Well, yeah. I just want to talk about uh, because you wrote a script for In the Name of the King Free, which they didn't use. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I also wrote oh, what's it called, Blood Rain four and five as well. Okay, um, were they scripts they actually used? Well, no, because or... they never made Blood Rain four and five in the end, which I think. It's oh, a shame okay. because uh, those scripts were great. Yeah, the the in in the name of the king part three thing was it was interesting. Um, it was kind of like the, an amalgamation of a script that I wrote with um, Gary Otto, who I met donkeys years ago on uh, uh, Citizen Toxie, Toxic Avenger part four, part three, part four, part four, yeah. Yeah, so we kind of like, he made this bold connection. And then from that, we did Blood Rain 4 and 5 and The Name of the King Part 3. We did another project together as well that I can't remember. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, kind of our script didn't get used, but also kind of it did, I think. I'm not sure about it. I have an associate producer credit. Um, and that's fine with me. Again, I, I own the film on DVD, on Blu-ray, and I, I haven't uh, got around to watching it yet. Oh, so no. once I've seen it, I'll be able to make firm words on things. Um, but yeah, they, Uwe Boll gives a brief, and it's very, very, do it like this. There isn't a lot of kind of, yeah, just do what you like, and we'll see how it plays. Um, he's like, I, I want it like this. And so... If you get two people working on the same thing, you're gonna you're gonna end up making very very similar scripts. Um, then once those scripts were laid out, extra limitations came in. Um, a lot of it had to be set in caves. Uh, there had to be more dragon effects. There had to be horses had to be removed from the film for a number of different reasons. Um, <laughs> and I haven't seen in the name of the king part three yet, but. Pay attention for caves, dragons, and an absence of horses. <laughs> Those are the things that we were working with. Um, but it was, it, I mean, I know that I, I just found it a kind of a fun experience, really. Um, he kind of tells you exactly, you know, here are the parameters. It's got to be within these two walls. You can't go beyond them. And then inside of that, kind of have a lot of fun. And, you know, that's that. A kind of nice thing to be doing really well i gather you must like it because um i mean you've as you said you've written other scripts yeah as and, well. and, and now there's 12 hours yeah <laughs> yeah i mean 12 hours is um it's kind of like a taken kind of film it's um it's a guy who uh is being forced to do things because if he doesn't do them then people he cares about will get hurt I think I can safely say all of that without giving away spoilers or anything. 
Is it a bit like that uh, Johnny Depp film? Which which Johnny Depp film? Dead Man? No. Fruit <laughs> and Loathing no. in Las Vegas. Uh, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, it's the one where uh, Christopher Walken's got his daughter oh. and he's got to do an assassination for it's him. Not in time. And it's done in real yeah, time. Yeah, it's something about time. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that, yeah. Except the film is not 12 hours long. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah it's not shown real yeah, time. <laughs> your man does have 12 hours to do all these things that he's been asked to do so yeah it's it's kind of like that it's, kind of, it's a little bit like that whatever that film was christopher walken's in oh it's called nick of time um it's yeah so it's got a kind of a nick of time vibe mixed with um what i just said taken kind of to it all set in <laughs> sofia bulgaria as well which is exciting that was fun. I had to. I did a lot of. Um, I do probably a little bit more reading about Sofia than I needed to do, but I did a lot of reading about <laughs> Sofia to get an idea of how big it was, where things were, what was there, that kind of thing. That was, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's good. That's good. And um, I, I gather if uh, UA Bowl comes calling, that you'll work with them again. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I that, my thing is that I keep saying is, you know, I've, I've got, there's one script in particular, which I've, I've had for years, which is Zombie Express, which um, I, I am convinced would make a very fun, low budget film. And um, I do keep trying to push that one. Um, mm. But the thing is, Uwe Boll works in the world of finance and business, and he needs things to be a certain way. He can't just take in spec scripts and then make them happen. Most of the time he's working because he's got the right to a franchise or a computer game or a something, or he's got access to very particular locations or costumes or um, special effects or something. And he, he needs to tie the film into what's available to him, which is, I, I think, a pretty understandable way of working, really. Instead of taking an imaginary script and then finding all the things, you look at what you have yeah. around you and then make a film to fit what you've got available. Yeah. Though, um, uh, have you seen Snowpiercer? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Yeah. It, when I saw Snowpiercer, I was kind of re reminded a bit of uh, Zombie Express. Dude, you've seen a million films and been reminded of Zombie Express. Well, yeah, but it was the same idea of working from the back. And, and heading all the way to the front of the train, yeah. Yeah, and I like I keep I think I'm a big fan of train movies. So if you put a train in your movie and Ben will watch it, that's kind of, that's a fact. Um, oh, so you must love Runaway Train. I don't love Runaway Train. No, no, I don't. My favorite train movie is Trans Siberian. I'll go on record saying that Trans Siberian, closely followed by Silver Streak. Okay, why? What do you like about Runaway Train? No, I don't know. Something about it. It's just. So boombastic and loud, and I don't know. It's, it's just not my favorite. Um, John Voight and Eric Roberts as well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it works right. It's Andre Konchalovsky, right? That's right. I mean, though, if uh, Kira Kurosawa had made it, do you think? Well, it would have been a lot different. It would have been. Film, it would have been but, so different. But it was based on his script. Yes, it is. Yes. Although, like, did he? Was it rewritten? It must have been rewritten. Must have been. <laughs> okay, I'm going to look this one up right now. So yeah, it's, it's his story, but it's not his script. So who wrote the script? Oh, look at these guys. I don't know how to pronounce their names. Oh, oh okay. no way. Uh, uh, Georgie Milicevic, Paul Zindel, and Ed Bunker, who's Mr. Uh, Blue in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, right. Yeah. 
worked away on it. Um, and it's based on a screenplay by Kurosawa, and the story was from two other guys, Reizo Kikushima and Hideo Oguna, Oguni. Which were probably the writers who wrote with uh, Akira Kurosawa originally, because he, he always worked with a group of, of script writers. You, you get this quite a lot. Um, there's, I don't know if you know, there's a Bunuel retrospective on the ICA at the moment. And they had uh, Jean-Claude Carrier come in for his for a Q&A after one of the films. And Jean-Claude Carrier wrote all of Bunuel's French comedies, or everything from like uh, The Milky Way onwards, or Viridiana onwards, and, and now I'm not sure of myself. But yeah, Bunuel had this this guy to bounce ideas off, and so he's just sitting there throwing out ideas. And Jean-Claude Carrier is actually the guy putting pen to paper and making everything work nicely. But uh, was it Brunel who's getting like the accolades for it? Though? Uh, yeah, I don't. I think if you watch a Brunel film, you don't focus on the script. I think you're paying right. attention to other things. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone out there who's going to correct me on this. But I think you, 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 yeah, it's like a Michael Bay film. You don't go to a Michael Bay film for the script. You go there for something else. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's been like a whole team of script writers working on that. Hells, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that's a good place to end. Are you sure? You don't have any. <laughs> you don't have any final questions. Um. Well, okay. I have a final question for yep. you. Um. Uh, so, for anybody thinking about doing script writing yep. uh, out there, what would your advice be? Uh, my advice would be to write a script, um, and then uh, sub- submit it to stuff. And then write another script and submit it to, to stuff as well. Um, I wouldn't, I meet a lot of people who say, yeah, I, I've got a script that I want to write, um, but I'm not quite ready yet. And I think, what's that about? Because you, you're going to be the same person tomorrow. I don't know what you think is going to happen. I think that you're going to think about writing for long enough, then you're going to be amazing. That's just not the case. It's like, um, if you wanted to get into pottery and you thought, well, what I'm going to do is think about pottery for five years before actually throwing any clay at the wheel. Um, and then I'm going to be amazing, but it, it doesn't work like that. You have to just get, get your hands dirty and get it done. So just get in there, write something, submit it. I am not a big fan of feedback sessions. Um, especially if you've got these kind of like arenas where people can submit scripts, specifically for feedback or competitions which aimed at feedback i i know that people are going to disagree with this but i think they're a huge waste of time because what you're getting is feedback from other writers and if you're a screenwriter and you're writing scripts you are not writing for other writers you're writing for um directors and producers and for and they have a they have a different set of requirements writers look at stuff as a writer and they're unable to do anything else. Um, yeah, so I'd, I'd write stuff, submit it, write another thing, submit it, write another thing, submit it. Um, obviously, do rewriting as well. And I would change forms, write long and short, um, write different genres, uh, write, don't just go in for screenwriting either, write other things as well. And also, I'd say read scripts. Oh, yeah, read scripts, read everything, um, read a lot of things. And, uh, yeah, do stuff that you wouldn't normally do as well because you're going to be writing films about people who do things that you've never done before and you're going to need a frame of reference for this. Um, 
so you need to you need to watch movies that you don't like and you need to go places that you don't normally go and you have to yeah live a life <laughs> go out there live a life chop a tree down <laughs> <laughs> bone a fish <laughs> that's it go and visit some caves yeah. find some dragons yeah. But without horses. Yeah, you make sure there are no horses anywhere <laughs> around whatsoever. Or any coconuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, that would have fixed it. Yes. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Patsy? Maybe number four. <laughs> that could be done. Return the king. Yeah. The return of Patsy. Yeah. <laughs> I could fly. We'll see. I'll do, I've got Uve on speed dial. Oh. <laughs> no one buy him. Oh, excellent! Right. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking. No, to thanks us, very much. Talking to me. No, sorry for any background noise. That's all right. Oh no, we're we're still recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> this is me wrapping I know. up. Um, so um, we'll, we'll end in our customary manner. Uh, where can people find your work? Um, I guess the best place to go is the my Look Think Films Vimeo page. I mean, that's that's me all my stuff that I write for me. And like you were saying, if I write for me, I've got different rules. There, you know, there isn't a client. There's no one else. So I, I go a bit wacky. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, check it out on Vimeo. I'm on Twitter. I'm, I, I don't really interact with people on Twitter. I'm old. I don't really know how it works. Um, but yeah, check, it, check out the old Look Think Films Vimeo page. That's where I'd start. And the website. And the website. Although I would go to the Vimeo page, it's more entertaining, but go to the, the website to work out what the hell's going on. Yeah. I would also uh, recommend checking out Ben's um, unusual film reviews. <laughs> where, he, where he talks about everything else but the What film. are you doing, Ben? Is what I often get when people are like, <laughs> I read a review you wrote the other day. What are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I don't understand what's happening. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's it's a lot of fun. It, it that's just uh, keeping in practice, you know. Keeping, I do. You've got to keep writing and you've got to keep thinking of different stuff. And yeah, that's uh, that's an exercise and keeping going and writing about different things. And uh, you can find my work as always at uh, independentrunnings.com. Uh, while you're there, check out uh, Monologue Triptych, which is Primero Segundo to Cero. Um, also check out uh, Blood and Roses. Oh, yeah. Uh, all written by uh, Ben Woodywiss. Yep. And uh, and uh, hopefully we're, well, just, just to say that we're collaborating on another script at the moment. So uh, fingers crossed that's all going to work yep. out. Give me, give, give me a few days of <laughs> no one asking me to do stuff and that'll be done. Well, there's no pressure because I still got modern love. To okay, finish. cool. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. I still, I'd like to get it done anyway. Yeah, and uh, yes, um, and you can find the podcast on uh, iTunes. Um, we're on Stitcher. We're on Mixcloud, and we're on YouTube. And uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. So it just leaves me to say thank you again, Ben, for. Uh, coming on and uh, talking about script writing and other stuff pleasure being here lovely talking to you and uh yes we'll uh, we'll see you in the next next episode of movie heaven movie hell
wait, where's the where's the live music? Where we're, we're end of the show? Where are the credits running? I thought we we got some music running. No, no, no. I'll put that in next afterwards. <laughs> I thought you had a live band playing. So disappointed. Well, um, to tell the truth, the music uh, is an unused track from uh, Primero. No, that's Primero. It would have been yes. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good choice. Good choice. I like the uh, the replacement. 